here's where we see that transition, that shift from tier one and two into tier three and four, where we're starting to see some more school-wide intervention or more complex needs being addressed. So as we look at component six, we're talking about reoccurring behavior concerns and responding to those. So what do we mean when we say reoccurring behavior concerns? And what are some productive ways that we can respond to them? Those reoccurring behaviors are those behaviors that in spite of these great things we've done within tier one and tier two, the student hasn't responded to what we have in place. We have a strong, we have a strong relationship. We have clear routines and expectations. We have been doing social emotional learning. You know, we've we have these really strong things in place for our students, but we're still seeing um, behaviors that are showing us that the child needs some more support and they show it consistently. It's not a, a one-time behavior or a once or twice kind of behavior. It, it, it happens more often and more frequently. And, you know, sometimes it, there's a bit of a pattern behind it, like um, an impulse control, um, you know, some, maybe some um, organization type of thing, but, you know, we see it over and above, um, you know, what we would say is our, our baseline norm for our classroom. As far as responding to that, the first thing is really getting to know the child on a deep level and looking at that, um, the idea of the behavior tree or the tree of responsive behavior, where we see these actions, these, these visible behaviors um, that are presenting in our classrooms, but then, you know, doing a little bit of digging and hypothesizing and thinking about what is really behind all of this. Is this a diagnosis that the student has, or do we need to investigate that at some point and go through the procedures to do that? Is this a case of um, disrupted connections in the child's life? Is there trauma um, that the child has experienced presently or in the past that might be impacting them? Or maybe there's some physical needs um, like sleep, food that, that could be impacting the child and really starting to take a deeper look at what's happening for that child and then um, moving forward in creating a bit of a plan to support the child, not only through, you know, addressing those visible behaviors and providing that a, a little bit more of a, think of it as a swoop in <laughs> um, support, a little bit more frequency with, with the adults um, in the building, really looking at what is going on underneath for that child and then coming in to address those roots of that behavior as well. Just building it into to what Kathleen mentioned in terms of um, that team approach, I think that's where it's it's really uh, essential that there's you know a team of people that kind of dig in and, and swoop in, if you will, to figure out what's happening. And an example from uh, you know one of the schools that I, I worked at, uh, we had a, a young student in grade one who was. Um, his recurring behavior would be a hit, right? So he would hit someone um, and then he would run. And so sometimes he would run right out the doors of the school, um, which was a safety risk, uh, you know, in both, both elements, right? With, with the hitting and then the running. And um, it just happened so often. 
And for that child, when we, when we dug in, uh, you know, we realized that his receptive language was, you know, less than the first percentile. So he, he could hardly understand the, the words that were being spoken in the classroom. So if the teacher was giving instructions and all the kids would do what they were supposed to do, this young student didn't know what to do. And he would get so frustrated because everybody was doing something and he didn't know what to do. So his response was to hit and, and run out the door. And our response, once we realized that the root was in communication, um, we were able to respond accordingly and make sure that he had access to the instructions. And you know, as we developed a plan to support his access to what was being said and instructions in the classroom, we saw behavior change. You both have mentioned the team approach, which brings us to component seven, that intervention team. When you consider the systematic approach to responsive behavior supports, what is an intervention team and how do they facilitate success for both students and staff? Student support team, that intervention team will involve, uh, you know, your inclusive support teacher or classroom support teacher in your school. Uh, it will include the teacher of, of the student or teachers, depending. Uh, it could include the educational assistant, uh, the family outreach worker, uh, and your administrators uh, within your building. And so typically that core team is, you know, the admin, the student support teacher, the family outreach worker, and then you bring in, you know, the teachers that, um, you know, pertain to the, the child that we're we're intervening uh, on behalf of. And once that referral is made, it's typically coming from that tier two place where you know we've tried all of these things and we need more support. And so a referral is made and then the intervention team comes in um, to start collecting some information and digging into a student file and making phone calls home to parents. Um, or caregivers, we're, we're making sure that we understand diagnoses, we are going in to collect some data and evidence and do some observations so that we can figure out what's going on. Educators don't have all the answers for every student. It's not possible to know how to support every student that comes across your path. It's just not possible. There is such diversity. And this really is the power of the intervention team is because there are some more concentrated, uh, some concentrated expertise on that team. So for example, a learning support teacher. So in that case, the learning support teacher maybe can help develop a plan for the student, but also go in and coach the teacher on uh, a particular strategy or have conversations about how to collect data and why to collect data and what this is going to be used for and then building capacity in that way too. So I think part of the power of this approach of a team is, you know, not only we can go in and help teachers with 
new strategies and understanding particular diagnoses and what they look like and how some different things to try to respond to that student. But when we do that, we're also building, like we mentioned before, that understanding about this is about support. This is about supporting the child. And this is why we're collecting the data. And, you know, we're, we're really gathering um, information to support the child. You know, sometimes as, as educators, like we mentioned before, like we're really getting, we can get triggered by behavior. And it's very frustrating when we have recurring behavior problems in our classroom and we feel like we're not getting anywhere and we've tried all these different things in our toolbox and we feel like we need to have the answers for this child. And that intervention team can, can really help with that. It is hard. And it can be really frustrating when we're trying to move through our, our program of studies and we're trying to assess students one-on-one -on -one or we're trying to confer with students or work with small groups and we're trying to have um, our classroom move as smoothly as possible and yet we have these recurring behaviors and it, you know, it can be really frustrating, but having them, you know, shifting our perspective and having someone to help us understand can really make a, a big difference. Well, I, I think it's it's really, you know, you're right, Kathleen, it's it's super defeating as a classroom teacher when you, you think you've tried everything. Um, and that intervention team can really help develop from a coaching perspective the, the understanding that this is complex work and that it's problem solving and you're going to go into it with uh, solution um, tr trial and error sometimes is, is really how you go into that intervention process. But to build the capacity and understanding that it is a team effort, that you don't have to go at it alone, because emotionally as a teacher, it's, it's very exhausting when you get to that place where you're trying to teach the rest of your class, you've got, um, you know, this recurring behavior that you can't seem to do anything about and so then this team comes in and it takes the pressure off of the classroom teacher in that mindset that it has to be them doing it by themselves but also builds their understanding that it is a like problem solution intervention let's dig in let's let's problem solve this and know that it's not going to be easy that it's not going to be this we're going to try one intervention and the whole thing is going to be wonderful. And um, it's, it's a team effort. I think that a really critical part of this is that it's done in a collaborative way with the teacher, not in a top-down way. Um, like honoring that the teacher has been working with this student for some time and they have tried many things. And that as someone on the intervention team, like you said, this is trial and error, but you, but I think it's like avoiding a top-down approach and um, coming at it from the view of, I'm an expert on this and I'm going to tell you what to do instead of building, involving teachers in the conversation and working together to create plans and, and potential solutions for the children. Both of you throughout this process have mentioned the collection of data and using it to inform the supports that students need. 
Now you both know I'm a total self-professed data geek. So I've been waiting to ask about this. <laughs> what sort of data might be important to collect and how might it be leveraged in the context of responsive behavior supports? I think the starting place is that I wanna say the communication with families um, where you, you wanna keep that open lines of communication with them and, and a healthy relationship uh, as much as possible so that you can understand a little bit more about a child and their behavior. I think from there, you're looking also into the, this, the education file for a student. So you wanna read if there's any speech assessments uh, or occupational therapy assessments or psychoeducational assessments and, and look through the history of a child and their profile um, and it may involve even talking to last year's teachers, if, if that's something that's available to you. And from there, um, that's where you start doing some collection of evidence. So the, the ABC charts is usually that, that starting place where you're looking at the antecedent, the behavior, and what the consequence is for a child over a period of time. So usually five days where you've collected some uh, what's happening before, during, and after for a child. And then the team has to get together and the, the team, the, the intervention team is gonna get together at that point and hypothesize what the trigger behavior is for a child. And from there, you can start collecting some frequency and duration once you have identified a hypothesis of what uh, is happening for the child in terms of behavior so that you can put in place some interventions. One of the things that has be, was most helpful to me is to identify when the biggest behavior was occurring. And quite often it, you know, it would be difficulty with that transition in the morning. And then once you know the, the events surrounding that behavior, then you can, uh, and Colette, I think this is what you're saying, then you can kind of dig into, okay, what is causing that behavior? What are the roots behind that behavior? And then, okay, so we can't do anything about what's happening at home. We can't help that the child refused to eat breakfast and got into a huge fight with their mom and they're out till 10 o'clock at night being dragged ar around the countryside and had course that we can't do anything about that but what we can do is when that child comes to the door screaming and crying we can have someone sit with them at the door help them regulate when they calm down see if they if they're hungry do they look after those basic needs and then we can help them plan their transition to the classroom we can help them get into the classroom and, and start their day yeah and I think that ABC is that that the starting place from where you put the intervention in place. So once you've, you're trying support and you've got that baseline data, um, then you put in that, that intervention and you want to try to track to see if it's made a difference for a child. So that's where that frequency, duration, um, tracking, because you're tracking the specific behaviors. So one example that comes to mind for me is the, the student who would go uh, to the bathroom at the start of math class and come back at the end of math class. 
keynote. So it was pretty consistent. And once we, we recognized that, oh, this is happening whenever, um, you know, a child is being put in a position where they're gonna have to show what they know in math, because this teacher really liked to ask kids to come up to the board randomly to show what they knew, thinking that that was a great idea. But for this one particular child who had a math disability, it wasn't. So once we put some supports in place and some safety in math class, um, you know, we were able to calculate the duration of time the child was out of the room diminished rapidly. So we were actually able to track that, wow, like just by putting some different things in place and approaching math class from a different angle for this, actually it ended up being for, it supported more than one student, but we were doing it for the one. Um, but we actually were able to track that, oh, wow, now they're only leaving for five minutes. And, you know, everything changed from there. You've talked about the data and how it's used to inform which supports to put in place, addressing the needs of the students. A lot of times that leads into a behavior support plan. So we know that there's a ton of plans that exist for students, IPPs, IEPs, success in school plans, et cetera. What is a behavior support plan? And how is it a unique kind of plan in comparison to the others? In terms of developing that behavior support plan, it's when you, you've done that intervention team has collected enough data to say, you know, we hypothesize that, that this behavior occurs when this happens for a child and we are going to try this intervention and we're gonna collect some data. Typically a behavior plan would be developed based on these are the student's strengths and these are the things that a student is good at and these are their areas of need. And we use the strengths of a child to help them um, you know, learn the skills that they are missing so in a behavior plan, for example, if we know that communication is the number one deficit for a child, but that they're very visual, um, then we know that whenever we use visuals, we're going to be supporting that child's access to their environment and what's expected in terms of behavior. And then you, you specifically outline the things that everybody's going to do to ensure that they get what they they need and then you reconvene two weeks later and um, you analyze if there's been any change um, what has worked what hasn't worked what do we need to tweak and again you're drawing on data and consistent data collection to make sure that the behavior plan is um, working <laughs> and of course when we make changes um, sometimes you see spikes in behavior and and those are the kinds of things that, you know, as an intervention uh, team, you actually talk about that with everybody. Like we're gonna put this intervention in place and we may see a spike in behavior, but then it should, you know, gradually release. You bring the parents on board. I think that's really important. And depending on the age of a child, um, you, would, you would involve the, the student in their behavior plan as well. Um, certainly in terms of, you know, giving them social stories. And if this happens, this is what will the con consequence be because there, there does need to be some consequences, especially if safety is a, is a factor because we, we do want to make sure that 
a child is, is learning different behaviors, but there also has to be safety uh, considered in, in part of that process. When everybody in the team agrees that, you know, this is a plan that we're going to put in place um, and our administrators sign off on it and the parents sign off on it. And sometimes it's embedded right into the IPP. It, it really depends on the severity of what's happening. One of the unique things I hear you discussing, though, is the frequency around which we're meeting about this plan. In comparison to an IPP, which can be months in between, you're talking about reconvening every couple of weeks to make sure it's on track and make changes and so on. Yeah, and sometimes it'll be every week. Like, you know, when, when you create the plan, um, because it's, it's going to vary from child to child and what you need to do. So um, you may need to, to meet um, at the beginning every day. Uh, but that, you know, essentially, you know, could be a week, it could be two weeks and, and the team will decide like, let's reconvene in a week um, to talk about this. And it might not involve the parents every time. And in fact, it's probably not going to be beneficial to have the parents there every time, um, but that they're aware of the plan and, and the communication is really um, strong. So in the plan, you'll also communicate you know, how often parents are going to be informed of, of progress or, or things that are severe happening. Moving beyond component nine, the behavior support plan, we look at component 10, which is crisis management. As proactive educators, <laughs> we also know that there's unforeseeable events that can take place. How does crisis management fit into responsive behavior supports? Huge part of it. And I think that a school has to have a plan in place that, um, you know, that, that there's a team that knows how to respond if, if there's a crisis and that everybody's had the right professional development. So whether that's nonviolent crisis intervention training and that there's a team of people that can engage in the event of a crisis in the school where um, there's an event that the team needs to be called in for. Um, it's, it's not going to look the same every time, but the way that the team communicates and responds with each other uh, has to be you know, set in advance. Um, and, and that safety is the utmost important thing for, for the child involved and the staff involved. So I think that it comes down to that communication of a plan and, and who's going to be involved, uh, even if there's a code word that gets announced on an intercom where it could be a silly word that gets announced on the intercom, but the team knows that they are in play and they need to go to a certain location in the school to support uh, a child who's in crisis and the, and the teachers involved in that as well. You've taken me through the 10 components of responsive behavior supports. And while it's not a hierarchy, you know, what you have to do one and then two and then three, you can see that they're very much intertwined. Why is it important for administrators to address all 10 components of responsive behavior supports? And in addressing them, how do you know that all 10 of those components are functioning as they're intended? I think this is really a 
an interesting thing, this uh, alignment between the layers of team and the and the tiers in the continuum of supports. And that's what your question really makes me think of is um, just that that continuity between the two and having that, you know, that base, the tier one, the tier two in place, they do all function together. And I think you would know they're, you know, these components are functioning together effectively. Um, some signs would be you developed a common understanding of behavior in your school. So staff have a common philosophy and understanding to respond to that behavior with. Um, you would see smooth processes um, in referring to the intervention team and beyond. Um, a sign might be in your collaborative response meeting, you've got um, you know, a good process to discuss students and then, you know, some time to refer students to the intervention team and the meeting isn't caught up in, um, you know, the same student coming around for discussion over and over and over again. So you see that the effectiveness of those layers of team um, being in place, um, part of that evidence would be in your collaborative response meeting. I, I think another thing would be the, the, the referrals to the intervention team um, becoming fewer as the collaborative team meeting is more firmly in place and the continuum of supports becomes developed a little bit more as well. Um, and again, with that common understanding of, of behavior and everybody is responding and supporting students in, in similar ways and in similar styles. Um, so those, those would be some of the things that would be evidence that these components are, are in place. As an administrator to create those, those layers of collaboration and the structures and processes within those layers, I think is what um, you know, changes the game in terms of knowing whether you're doing an intervention at tier two, tier three, or tier four, and who's involved. And I do think it comes down to, um, instead of going from zero to 100, so if a behavior is happening in a classroom that immediately um, there's the, the intervention team involved and, and how often that overloads that intervention team, and when an administration has created those layers of team meeting, um, you know, at a collaborative team meeting where they're, they're talking about key issues with students and, and behaviors, um, you know, there may be some things that teachers realize that they're not doing in terms of routines, or maybe there's some interventions that they can put in place at the classroom level that will just, you know, tweak things up and build the capacity of that team. Um, of teachers within the school so that it doesn't overload that intervention team. Administration has created the time for those meetings to occur and conversations to happen. Um, it really creates an effective way of uh, supporting responsive behavior in a school. It's taken us some time to go through all of the 10 components that came together and we can see the complexity of the work that Barb put together and tried to build a coherent model out of. Do you have any final thoughts to share around responsive behavior supports? One thing I would um, I think about is just the import 
importance of reflecting on each component. Um, I, I feel if, you know, if something's not working, just to really analyze, like, are these layers of, of teams in place and effective? And do we have a continuum of supports? Are we on the same page as far as our beliefs about behavior? Um, are we really clear and are we communicating clearly and uh, really thinking through each of these components and whether they are, they're present where they need to be present and the people do, um, in those roles are, um, are feeling comfortable with what they're um, you know, what their role is and everybody's understanding their, their part, the responsive behavior symbol, their gears, and just making sure that all those gears are running smoothly and all those little cogs are, are in, in place. Well, I love the way that Barb organized the 10 components of responsive behavior as a framework and that those first five components are tier one and two and that six through 10 are looking at tiers three and four. And so that when you, when you look at that poster for the first time and you start going through those tier one and two supports, you can reflect like Kathleen talked about on, are we doing these things uh, to support the kids within our classrooms? Or if we don't have one through five in place in the classroom, that's, you know, that's something to look at and say, well, can we dig in here? Um, so I, I love the framework that it creates when we're talking about responding to behavior. As we bring this to a close, we want to acknowledge Barb and the work that she's done. So Barb, if you're out there watching, we are so proud of you for providing this framework to us and allowing us to continue with this work. Colette and Kathleen, this has been a learning journey for both of you. And we appreciate you taking the time out of the work that you do with our partners to share with us and dig deeper into the simplexity that is responsive behavior supports. Thank you.